Hi, I'm Timothy, and all of my electric guitars are red and built by the Fender Corporation. And I'm Garrick, and I think that red and black is the greatest color combination in the history of mankind. Well, this week we are going to be looking at the apologetics of C.S. Lewis with our friend Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University. And then in the second half, we're going to look at the song that inspired this program in the first place, All Along the Watchtower by U2. Now, to learn more about apologetics, we'd encourage you to take a look at the book Passionate Conviction, edited by William Lane Craig from our friends at B&H Academic. For more information, you can check out this book at the website bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host Garrick Bailey and I tackle an issue related to apologetics. Then we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a moment from the history of rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. I'm here with my friend Dan DeWitt. He's the director of the Center for Biblical Apologetics at Cedarville University. And we have shared many things over the years, including a summer in England together. Today, we've just spoken at a conference together. But one of the most important things that we share is a love for C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis has deeply impacted both of our lives. And so we are today simply going to talk about the influence of C.S. Lewis on our lives, but also simply how C.S. Lewis is an important apologist that everyone should read. And so, Dan, could you first simply help our listeners to understand who was C.S. Lewis? Yeah, he was an academic. He was a professor. He was born in Ireland in 1898. He then died on the same day JFK, President Kennedy, was assassinated in 1963. And he was a professor, first an atheist, then came to faith after a late-night conversation with J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson, and after reading a book by G.K. Chesterton called The Everlasting Man. And so in addition to being a professor, he just started writing about his faith. He spoke to soldiers on the weekends in the Royal Air Force about how they could think about Christianity. He gave a series of radio talks during World War II. He would leave the safety of Oxford, which was never bombed, to go to the city of London and give these radio talks that eventually became mere Christianity. So he was an apologist. He wrote children's stories. And so all around the world, people know of the Narnia stories. So C.S. Lewis was a man of many gifts. And because he so deeply loved the Lord, that, you know, shined through everything that he did. Well, my first encounter with C.S. Lewis was the fact that in a particular Christian school that I attended, Magician's Nephew was outlawed. I have no idea why to this day. They had the Chronicles of Narnia on the shelf, but all of them were there except the Magician's Nephew, and we were told we could not read that particular book. And so I read all of the others in that particular series. And at a time years later when I was really struggling with my faith, I did not know that C.S. Lewis 
Rose was an apologist. I had no idea at that point. And I ran across this particular book by him, Mere Christianity, which oddly enough, didn't have any real impact on my faith at that time. Mere Christianity didn't do anything for me. The book that did was Problem of Pain. Mm -hmm. And the other one was Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy, that one had the most impact when I was wrestling with atheism because it showed me the opposite trajectory from the one I thought I was on, which was from Christianity to atheism. And it was the exact opposite trajectory. And many of the things I was struggling with at that time, which one of them was pagan parallels supposedly to the Gospels, which I thought was a big deal. I now know is not that big of a deal. But to me at that time, it was a massive thing. And he deals with that in Surprised by Joy. And then I went on from that one and read Problem of Pain, which dealt with another issue because it was the first time I ran across anybody who loved Jesus and believed in an earth that was billions of years old. And that was really important for me because I'd become convinced by that point that the earth is ancient, is very old, is over billions of years old. And I was having a difficult time reconciling that because in the churches I was raised in, you couldn't believe that and still be a Christian. So one of my thoughts was, well, I must need to walk away from the Christian faith over that. And suddenly I'm reading Problem of Pain and I realize, oh my goodness, am I reading what I think I'm reading? Somebody who loves Jesus and who believes the earth is many billions of years old. And so those were incredibly, incredibly influential on my life. And so could you just tell our listeners how C.S. Lewis has perhaps influenced your life and which books maybe are the most influential for you? Well, it's interesting to hear you say that about the problem of pain, because everybody thinks mere Christianity immediately, but the problem of pain is actually probably more influential simply for the fact that there wouldn't be a mere Christianity. You know, it was James Welch at the BBC who read the problem of pain and thought, I've got to get this guy doing radio talks, which eventually became mere Christianity. So in some ways, it's more influential because it led to the other. The way Lewis impacted me, I think that in seminary, I would say C.S. Lewis was one of my favorite authors. And I really just meant I want to be perceived as being smart and cool, and that's what you say. You like Lewis then, you know. And in the way that some people would say they're identifying with Calvin or Luther, for me, I wanted to be a part of a different tribe. But then I realized I hadn't read much of Lewis. I'd read the Narnia stories, screw tape letters. I think I'd read parts of mere Christianity, but not much of Lewis. So I signed up for a book club at Borders Bookstore on Hurstbourne, which is now closed, of course, for the screw tape letters. And I bought the signature series of C.S. Lewis, which has several other books, and read the screw tape letters, developed my own kind of insightful model for interpreting the screw tape letters, and showed up eager to afflict everyone else with my theory. And nobody showed up. So I sat there and started reading The Problem of Pain, then read A Grief Observed, and just things I could read little bits of, which led to devouring several books by Lewis. And Lewis made it possible for me to be an intellectually satisfied Christian in a way that some people as atheists will say that about Charles Darwin. C.S. Lewis for me was that, here's an intelligent Christian. I don't always agree with him on everything, but he could show that he could be winsome in conversation with others who disagree with him, and give a real thorough treatment, even if I don't agree with it. It's a fair, thorough treatment, so that's what Lewis has done for me. 
Well, what do you think, from your perspective, some of Lewis's strongest apologetics arguments are? What are Lewis's strongest points that you think, that one sticks with me, I use that one, that apologetics argument? If you were to just give a few that are excellent, what would they be? Well, right now I'm reading through Mere Christianity with a group of college students. So we meet every Friday in our campus cafe. We call it Mere Caffeination. And so it's only fitting that, you know, that we go through mere Christianity. And his explanation of the moral law as a way of drawing people in, which I would argue is really an argument that starts with the human experience. So, you know, some people are calling that cultural apologetics or imaginative apologetics, whatever you want to call it. Lewis really reflected on the human experience so much so that he could talk about it in a way that people would just be sucked in. Like, I know how that feels. And then he would say, well, that seems to point to a lot outside of ourselves. And then now you're duped into recognizing that there's this transcendent universal law, which if it was just an intellectual argument from the offset, you might have rejected, but the way Lewis talks about it, you realize it's kind of hard to deny. So I think that one's really big. I think the way that Lewis talks about in his book, Miracles, which is my favorite probably apologetic book he did, his use of the evolutionary argument against naturalism before Alvin Plantinga made it cool, and I'm so thankful for what Plantinga has done with it, so I don't mean to trivialize that. But Lewis said that that was the strongest argument against a reductive materialism, against this atheistic worldview. So I often will go back and quote Lewis. That argument shows up all throughout Lewis's essays. It shows up in mere Christianity. So he's always kind of beating that drum. And then I think the other one, you know, Lewis felt like at the end of his life, the Narnia stories came at the end of his writing career, not the beginning— and by the time Mere Christianity finally made it to print, you know, originally it was three little booklets, when it made it into one book as Mere Christianity, Lewis had already stopped using that kind of direct apologetic approach. So the Narnia stories came later as a result of converging influences, but I think that this way of talking about Christianity, as Tim Keller says, we should talk about the gospel in a way in which people think, I wish that was true. And I think that that use of talking about, or as Pascal said, we should seek first to show that Christianity is desirable, then plausible, then true. The way Lewis does that in the Narnia stories to me is really compelling. Well, what would you say if somebody said to you, what is the one book by C.S. Lewis I ought to start with to read? What would that be? Well, you know, so many books that I love by Lewis, like one of my favorites, Till We Have Faces, but I couldn't just recommend that. I would have to say, read The Four Loves, and then when you read Till We Have Faces, it will make sense to you, or That Hideous Strength. But before you read The Hideous Strength, you need to read The Abolition of Man, and then read the essay, The Inner Ring, and then you'll read That Hideous Strength and go, this is brilliant. But if you're just going to pick one, I would say, I think Surprised by Joy, Screwtape Letters, if I had someone say, give me just one direct apologetics one, I'd probably say, for me, Miracles has been the most powerful for me. For me, I always recommend first Surprised by Joy. That's absolutely the one that to me was most the most impacting upon my life, but also I think the narrative structure of it, him telling his own story is excellent. The other one I've actually required students frequently to read is his essay, Fern Seeds and Elephants. That is one of my favorites because it shows how ridiculous the reductionistic, naturalistic theology of theological liberalism, it shows how ridiculous that is, where he says, in essence, you claim that you can see a fern seed from a distance, but you can't see the elephant right in front of you. And to me, that is still a helpful essay, and I require students to read it very frequently, to read that text 
text so that they understand when they're reading Rudolf Bultmann or somebody who's a skeptic about the truth of the Bible. Let's blow the whistle on that first, and let's read together Fern Seeds and Elephants by C.S. Lewis, a great little essay that I would strongly recommend that you read. Well, as always, we cannot end an episode without drawing a question from the Infinity Gauntlet, which, as we always warn you, is the actual gauntlet that Thanos wore in the Infinity War, by which he destroyed half of humanity upon the earth, and which we have obtained by means we cannot tell you and did not merely gain it at Target for 1999. And so, the question from the Infinity Gauntlet this week is if Captain America and Superman fought one another, who would win? I think clearly Superman. Why? It would have to do probably with the cape. I think it's because he has a cape. See, this is actually an ongoing thing we talk about on this podcast about why superheroes shouldn't wear capes. We have this going on on the podcast, and we have several times. So capes come up from time to time on the podcast. But one of the things, I think you're right, Superman. I think Superman has to win because Captain America would fight fair. Now, if Superman is fighting Batman, as we know, Kryptonite would come into play, and Kryptonite would defeat Superman. I think if Superman were fighting Iron Man, he would play dirty, find some Kryptonite, but Captain America plays fair. And in a fair fight between Superman and Captain America, I have to say Superman would win. Rock and roll. It's one of the greatest human inventions and one of the supreme expressions of God's common grace. The way we see it, the golden age of this invention began with Bob Dylan and ended with Pearl Jam. And that is why each week in the second half of the program, Garrick and I review one of our favorite songs and go digging for truth in classic rock. So we've talked about Dylan's version of all Along the Watchtower. We've talked about Hendrix's version of the same song. Let's spend one more week talking about this great song by another great band, I think we can all agree, by U2. What's different about U2's version of All Along the Watchtower? Well, it's really sloppy and simple. I mean, really it is. It's the version that at least we have recorded is very sloppy, very simple. They recorded it, of course, about 20 years to the same week. I don't know if they were aware of this, but it was about 20 years to the same week that Dylan recorded All Along the Watchtower in November 1967. So just almost 20 years after that, U2 recorded a version that switched an entire verse of the song. So there's an entire verse that they actually swap out in that. So Bono makes up a different verse for it at this point. And they do this in San Francisco, which, of course, is a a center point of so many different things we talk about during the history of rock and roll. So 
remember back, and I had to actually look back at some things to remember exactly what was going on in 1987. I was alive, obviously, then. I was at least vaguely cognizant of the news in 1987. But there had been a financial crisis that I'd completely forgotten about called Black Monday. And to this day, it's the largest one-day stock market loss in history. So a few weeks after that, in November, U2 added a free Save the Yuppies concert to the Rattle and Hum Tour, which was a free concert to cheer up the people in the financial district. And so, as I said, this is about 20 years to the same week in November of 1967, when Dylan had recorded this in November of 1987, U2 records this live version in Justin Herman Plaza in San Francisco. So it's only about four miles from the Haight-Ashbury district where the Summer of Love had happened. You just go west on Market Street, that kind of goes at a southwest angle, get on Oak Street from Justin Herman Plaza and go straight into the Haight-Ashbury district. So they're, they're fairly close to that. And during Pride, not during All Along the Watchtower, in the Rattle and Hum video, they've put the part where during Pride, Bono spray paints rock and roll, stop the traffic. They put that during All Along the Watchtower. That's not when he actually did it, during Pride. And if you notice that both Edge's playing and Bono's vocals don't match in the Rattle and Hum video during that, it's because they've, they've interposed that in from a different section. But it is kind of funny. He does that on a public sculpture, and he makes the mayor of San Francisco really mad. And the mayor of San Francisco is Diane Feinstein, who we know very well now as being a senator from California. But at that time, she was the mayor of San Francisco. So they opened with All Along the Watchtower, right, singing to a, a crowd of businessmen this critique of the power and wealth of Babylon that declares businessmen, they drink my wine. You two had played all on the Watchtower on the the Boy Tour in 1981, and their version then of Watchtower was more Hendrix than Dylan. But in the 87 version, Bono made his own. Yeah, he really does. And what he does is he actually swaps out one of the verses. Instead of that verse that starts with, in the distance, the wildcat did howl. That he doesn't do in the 1987 version. Instead, he sang the lines that actually give this program its name. He says, all I've got is a red guitar, three chords, and the truth. All I've got is a red guitar, and the rest is up to you. And he uses this phrase. It's a fascinating phrase. You'll see it often used in reference to country music. It actually comes from a guy named Harlan Howard, one of the greatest songwriters in country music. He wrote songs like I Fall to Pieces that was recorded by Patsy Cline. He recorded Heartaches by the Number, which is kind of a a very quintessential country song, which has been recorded by George Jones, Kitty Wells, Buck Owens, Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, and Cindy Lauper, that great country artist, Cindy Lauper. And as for the quality of that particular cover song, it's Cindy Lauper. Yeah. 
Harlan Howard, he had described a good country song as being something that is nothing more than three chords and the truth. And that's what he described it as. And great songwriter, like Jimi Hendrix, he was an army paratrooper, just like Jimi Hendrix had been. But when he says it's three chords and the truth, it was his way of pointing out that a song doesn't have to be complicated. It needs to speak a truth and tell a story in a simple way that really resonates with people's souls. And that's what Harlan Howard was trying to get at by saying that all a country song is, is three chords and the truth. And I think it's something we ought to remember. It's true of preaching. It's true of teaching. Things don't have to be complicated to be deep. And that's what he's recognizing. It doesn't have to be complicated to be deep. Yeah, that's a fascinating connection. But I'm guessing that everyone's question is, how in the world does a phrase about country music from Harlan Howard make it into a song by U2. How it seems like it makes its way into the U2 version of All Along the Watchtower is through a comment that The Edge made to Bono about Curtis Mayfield's song, People Get Ready. It's a song that is a beautiful song. People Get Ready, three chord song. Actually, depending on how you play it, you can play it with four chords, which is kind of funny that he makes this comment about a song that in most versions has four chords, not three. But nonetheless, Curtis Mayfield's song, People Get Ready, has these lyrics. Great song. People get ready. There's a train to Jordan picking up passengers coast to coast. Faith is the key. Open the doors and board them. There's hope for all among those loved the most. There ain't no room for the hopeless sinner who would hurt all mankind just to save his own. Have pity on those whose chances grow thinner, for there is no hiding place against the kingdom's throne. And The Edge was listening to that song and said to Bono, that song's three chords could change the world. And it's a great song. I mean, so much richness and depth in this particular song. Justification by faith alone is here. The judgment of God, the judgment of the kingdom is all these themes that are so important. And The Edge says these songs, three chords, could change the world. People get ready. There's a train coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get on board. What we see here is that Bob Dylan's sort of his eschatology of judgment is replaced by Bono with an eschatology of hope. So really Bob Dylan in that section of the song about the wildcat did growl, all of that is the coming judgment. It's all about judgment. Bono replaces his sort of pessimistic eschatology, Bob Dylan's pessimistic eschatology with an eschatology of hope. All I've got is a red guitar and three chords and the truth. All I've got is a red guitar. The rest is up to you. It's calling out to the people to participate in this kingdom, to participate in this transformation of the world. So Dylan's eschatology is closer and more indicative of the dispensational premillennial eschatology of the time. So in the 19th century, a more pessimistic eschatology had emerged in response to the dominant post-millennialism that expected the conversion of the world into the kingdom. And so this dispensational pre-millennialism kind of combined a, some would say, an over-literal reading of the biblical text with, secondly, a spiritualization of the end times by shifting physical promises and redemption of the world from the church to Israel. And that's what we start seeing in this is 
that Dylan is much more of a pessimist about the end of time. And, and we've got to recognize that this is coming out of, he's coming out of World War II and World War One, global depression, that all those things are form the background of this. Currently, war in Vietnam, when he's doing some of these songs, and the rising eschatology of that time was dispensational premillennialism, this idea that the world was going to get worse and worse, then the church would be removed, and then the world would get worse even more, and then Jesus would come back. And that's so different from the 19th century eschatology, which dominant eschatology in the 19th century was postmillennialism. That is, the church is going to work and spread the gospel and in its liberal form try to change society and make the world better and better. And then at the end of that time, Jesus will return. Bono never gives in to pessimism. And sometimes Bono strikes me as the last post-millennialist in the world because even the name of the band, you too, you also join in with this. Let's change the world. Last year I was at a U2 concert and it's just amazing the optimism that he brings. It was during the Joshua Tree tour and he just, when they were playing all of Joshua Tree and the, the optimism that Bono brings of everybody join together, we can make the world a better place in this. And so this fits with Bono's eschatology and this idea of join in, we can make the world a better place. So in a sense, we could say that Bono's All Along the Watchtower is more old school than Dylan's original version. It's old school if you consider the the 19th century old school at that point. (laughs) But I think really what I like to think of them as is sort of operating in tension with one another. Because part of what Carly F. H. Henry calls us to in the uneasy conscience of modern fundamentalism is an eschatology that is both optimistic and pessimistic. That is to say, we recognize there is great evil coming. We recognize that the hearts of people will grow cold to the things of God. We recognize that at the same time, we as believers try to seek to, as much as we can, make the kingdom present and revealed in the world and protest against systemic abuses and systemic issues in society. It's a both and. It's both of these operating in a paradox, a tension with one another. And so in Dylan, you've got the pessimistic side. Judgment is coming. In Bono, you've got let's join together to change the world. Those are both biblical truths that we hold in tension with one another, and we pursue both of those at the same time. So if Timothy Paul Jones, or when Timothy Paul Jones records his version today of All Along the Watchtower, how does it look different? All of the verses end up in there. And I really mean that in that I would include the wildcat did growl on that whole section there, but then end it with all I've got is a red guitar, three chords in the truth. All I've got is a red guitar. The rest is up to you. And now, since you've already raised the issue of how I would record it, that would be like an acapella section at the end in which the crowd sings back that last section. All I've got is a red guitar, three chords in the truth. All I've got is a red guitar. The rest is up to you. That's a response. That is, shall we say, the invitation.
Well, to close out today, talking about All Along the Watchtower, we're going to listen to another sloppy live song that was inspired by an Old Testament prophet. The name of the song is The Watchman, and it actually was inspired somewhat through All Along the Watchtower, which, of course, All Along the Watchtower comes from Isaiah chapter 21. And this song, Watchman, I was thinking if Isaiah 21 and Ezekiel chapter 3, there's different things about a watchman and a watchtower, and wrote this song after reading those passages of scripture and was recorded mostly live in the spring of 1993 in a house that had been condemned, but they'd left the electricity on in the house. Uncomfortable question. (laughs) Isn't that illegal? Thank you for joining us today. If you want to connect with the two of us, check out threechordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. If you're interested in choosing one of the songs we review in the future or in picking up Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash threechordsandthetruth. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords and the Truth.